Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. We're live streaming on YouTube. I'm Marty Gentius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. Uh, we've got six regular members here with questions generated, hopefully, from the audience that I think has just gotten in. And um, I would love to have you um, say hello if you're in the chat room. We had some technical problems to start off with. And that's all getting cleared up. But we've got our six regular members, Jen, Eric, Gina, Stephanie, and Elliot. And then we have some great guests who've joined us tonight and have been very patient. So you'll see them on the screen. Stephen Sanders, Michael Jones, Eric Baltrinick, Ed Newcraig, and uh, Gideon, who is joining us also. So will you guys, why don't we start off? Stephen, you've been on the podcast before. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Then we'll go Michael, uh, Ed, uh, Eric, and Gideon. I'm always happy to be here, happy to join. I am a doctoral candidate at Cleveland State University in counseling psychology, and I'm adjunct faculty for both Castle and uh, Curriculum and Foundations, and I do a lot of research with the Cleveland Metro School District. All right, my name is uh, Michael Jones and I am clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University and also have a YouTube channel, uh, Breaking Down Mental Health with Dr. Jones and I'm glad to be here tonight. Hey, I'm Ed Newcraig and I'm chair of the uh, Counseling and Human Service Department at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia and have been around for a while. Thank you, happy to be here. Hey everyone. Oh, sorry, Gary. Uh, I was just—I was just so excited to be here. Um, sorry for stepping on your digital toes. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Gideon. Um, I am on faculty at the Counseling at Northwestern program, um, and I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Eric Baltrinick, uh, assistant professor at University of Alabama, um, counselor education. So we've got this. Uh, larger crew tonight, and we really would like you to, uh, the audience who's uh, in the chat room, and we've got, I don't know, 20 or so now, um, uh, to please submit a question. And the questions can be anything from uh, silly to serious about counseling. I'm saying, please don't ask clinical questions. We're not in a position to answer that. But uh, everybody who joins us tonight, everybody who uh, submits a question that we use with the crew, we'll be getting one of these coveted circular firing squad flash drives. So um, if you submit a question and we use it, um, I've got a stack of these to mail out to you and send me your, your mailing address after the show and we'll get to that. So um, I'm going to throw out a first question and then try and, uh, be silent for a while and work out some of the tech issues and make sure things are flowing okay. What is a commercial theme song that runs through your head and you can't shake loose of it? I got one for this, actually. All so right, Elliot, whenever, you start. When I'm writing fiction, I listen to WKIT, Stephen King's radio station out of Bangor, Maine, and they've got a Anderson window thing and it goes, the better way to a better window secure by Anderson. And that just Jimmy plays that all day long. I don't know why, but that's mine. 
Can I flash back to the eighties? Because there was this horrible commercial. And by the way, this is a product I have never purchased in my life, but it is a gentleman, like a country Western singer sitting on a, like a dark lit stage, smoky bar kind of thing. And I can't remember the rest of the song, but what I do remember is Doxadan, gentle Doxadan, when nature needs a helping hand, get overnight relief with Doxadan, sure as the sun rises. Anybody remember this? Yeah. I heard that, yeah. It had to have been like 1984. It's still rattling around in there. I don't know if they sell Doxadan anymore, but I got to tell you, just sometimes out of nowhere, just pops up. Now, Eric, we want to know if you're singing tonight because Elliot and I have already put it out there and we know how much you love to sing. So, so give us a little something. All right. Fine. Um, my kids are all about cocoa wheats right now. Anybody know that one? It's the cocoa wheats, cocoa wheats can't be beat. The creamy hot syrup with the cocoa treat. It's as much as you get from me. Right. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. Love it, Eric. You're totally off the hook for tonight. Well, unless something better comes up. Yeah, please don't do that to me again. Uh, can I jump in on this one? Because uh, this is a question I generated, and it comes from, um, well, there's a long story behind it. Not too long. I started working in radio, and they did this uh, satire at our university at that time. This was back in late 70s, mid 70s. And it was uh, sort of the typical college freshman at our university. And they did this, they did this radio thing where it was a serial comedy thing. And the guy's name was Flush Bisbo. And Flush Bisbo would pedal across the quad. And he would, in, in his back, he'd go, every day of the month belongs to you with my doll. Um, that's the old my doll commercial. Um, and so whenever I get stressed out, that's the theme that pops into my head for some reason. I think of pedaling my bike across the quad and um, singing the Midol commercial. That's it. You. That's my inner dirty secret. I'm going to visit Kent to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, Marty, that is hilarious that you hear a Midol commercial in your head when you're working. Man. Well, no, I was when I get stopped. I mean, I don't, when I, yeah, now, now I can't get rid of it. But I'd like to just pop in with a, uh, a quick antidote to earwigs. And it's a song that showed up in Warner Brothers cartoons in the early mid 20th century. It's called Powerhouse. And it was a part of a rush song too. It goes bum 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 ba da ba da bum 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 ba da ba da bum 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 ba da ba da bum 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 ba da ba da bum bum bum. That's a cleansing tune. It'll get any earwig out of your brain. That sounds great, but when I write, don't judge me. I usually hum over and over again the Oscar Mayer song for Baloney, and that helps keep me on track with writing. So I guess that'd be mine. And I don't want to clear that out because I have a lot of success doing it and then writing. So I think I'm going to keep it. Sing, Stephen, sing. <clears throat> no. <laughs> Any other responses to, uh, to jingles? I do. And it's not, it's not a commercial, but my, I have two daughters in their twenties and they've got me a little hooked on TikTok and for, an older person in the field, it's good to stay stay with the young generation. And so if, you, if you're on TikTok, you know that there are all these songs that get really popular. And there's this one song called Space Girl. 
which is just driving me crazy. And I work out to it. Like I do these 50 minute workouts and I play it over and over again, um, you know, like 10 times. And one of the lines in the, uh, in it is, I just pulled it up. Um, Space girl. The only way that we'd end was if you were sucked into a black hole, but I'd still spend my, my days dreaming about you. I just love that line. So uh, that's my, my thing right now. Right. I got one for you, Marty. Okay. I DVR, so I fast forward or mute commercials and instead listen to The Clash. You listen to The Clash during commercials? No, when I write. <laughs> oh, 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 I, I didn't. This is not what I think, I think of. I believe me, I, I do not think of, of Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do not think of those commercials when I write, but it's just one of those things that pops into my head. So Clash, that's your, but your writing is so controlled and so uh, well put together. Punk rock is a good baseline for focus. <laughs> for me. Okay, um, I guess another question I have, uh, I'll toss out to the group. Is there a teaching approach or technique that you want to try this semester? I don't know if I want to, but I'm going to be teaching with a mask on, socially distant. So I guess that's sort of a change. I don't know if I would call it a technique, but uh, that's what's on my mind. Does getting people to cooperate on Zoom count as a teaching technique? Because I'm going to try that this semester. Didn't work last semester. What are you going to do? I mean, I can't bribe them with candy like I do in the classroom, so I'm really not sure. I guess we're just going to keep calling on folks and hoping for the best. I'm not sure yet. The feedback I got was put them into breakout rooms. They love the breakout rooms. I will take that and use it. Anybody have any good breakout room stories like where they where you have gone and lurked into a breakout room and heard or seen something that you surprised you or was interesting to you when you went in? Yes. So at Northwestern, we we use breakout rooms a lot and prior to Zoom. So we've always and Gideon knows this, but we've always taught online and we used to have a program called Adobe Connect. And in that, when we used to do breakout rooms, people's faces would be separated from their voices. So all the time I would pop into a breakout room and someone would be talking and they wouldn't be in the room or they'd be present in the room and they wouldn't be able to talk. And so that was always one of my favorite tech glitches in the breakout room situation was when we had lurking voices and no bodies or vice versa. You know, there's a metaphor in there somewhere. I think so. Right? Yeah, I mean, my favorite is always jumping in and then they're laughing and I don't get to hear the joke. And then they replay the moment and it's a you kind of had to be there kind of thing. And then I feel like the interloper in the whole situation and I'm the one teaching the course, right? <laughs> like, I'm supposed to be here. Okay. Right? That's my role. 
I caught somebody swigging a beer this past semester, um, and I, I didn't full-on bust them for it because I, we realized as a team that we didn't have anything in the policy about not drinking during online courses because, you know, we just went online. So we, you know, we did a friendly reminder when we did group advising in the, you know, a couple weeks later, but I was just like, I bartended long enough. I know what a beer looks like, um, and I could name that label, you know, but, you know, what can you do? <laughs> So Jennifer, that's kind of interesting because I've I've had a beer while I was teaching online. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, if you're I drunk, it's one thing, but I figure I'm home. I'm you know I'm I'm in my sweatpants. Might as well have a beer. Teach especially. <laughs> in the- <laughs> I can't wait to get the full. <laughs> yeah, right, Eric. I'm with you. <laughs> well, I got I got one tag onto that. And this was when we were face-to-face years ago. It was a summer class compressed six weeks. And I went up to the lectern one day, and there was a very large can of Colt 45 malt liquor. And I was like, all right, well, it's not exactly an apple for the teacher, but thank you, whoever. And someone in the back said, Doc, we just need you to slow down, please. For the love of God, slow down. And I was like, message received. Okay. Okay, so when I went to college in the 70s, we used to smoke pot in our class, classes with our professor. So what do you think about doing that today? I don't see where all these theories came from. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think of, uh, say that again, Ed? Well, you know, we've gotten pretty rigid over the years, I think. And I, I'm not a pot smoker anymore, but um, but I just wonder what what that would be like if we were to do something like that in our classrooms today and just loosen up a little bit. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's a tough question. I mean, coming from an ex-pot smoker to a current beer drinker, uh, Ed, uh, you, there's progress. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how to handle that one. Anybody have ideas? My biggest concern is like why I wouldn't do edibles before the podcast, because I might start talking about Psycho Farm, but then there are connections to quantum physics and poetry and comic books, and I'd go off on all those tangents. And I just, I think the scope of knowledge might get too broad, at least where, where, where I was concerned. I haven't been in several of your classes before. What would be the difference? <laughs> well, it would be slower. <laughs> For us. So we have some questions coming in. Uh, and we have one question. I'll start with uh, Joseph Martin, who put in the chat room How do you navigate dealing with defensive people? And I think he's referring to counseling, but uh, just in general, how do you navigate dealing with defensive people? I guess I could jump in. It's hard to be angry if you're laughing. So I just try to tell a joke. Usually that helps disarm people. Um, If you know where you are in the country, sometimes you can use sports. Not in Ohio over the last week and a half, but in other places you can use sports to make people kind of feel better. Yeah, I would definitely say humor is definitely a good way of being able to kind of break the ice and realize we're humans too. And I think sometimes people forget that. So just, just bringing it out is always helpful for me. So I, I went to a workshop once and the, 
and it was on resistant adolescence. And the first thing the presenter said was, there are no resistant adolescents, there are only resistant therapists. And so maybe it's kind of similar. Maybe there are, maybe we're not talking about defensive people. Maybe we're talking about what we do with our own defenses when we're around certain people. Yeah. Ed, I feel that I, so I worked a lot with children and adolescents and especially those who have experienced trauma. So I was met with a whole lot of resistance, a lot, very frequently. And I think humor is great. Um, but when you have a real angsty teenager sitting in front of you, I think humor only goes so far. So leaning into that, you know, looking within me and seeing what what I'm holding back from um, and playing into it. So, OK, we can sit here in silence together. That's fine. And people get uncomfortable in silence real quick if they if they're left to it. Yeah, kind of piggybacking on Gina. Uh, sometimes I would use a one down position and just kind of pull back. And sometimes that that would be in a moment of silence. I like curiosity too. I mean, let's be honest, like that helps us take that position of joining and just tell me what's going on. And, you know, usually when you have the, your curious face on, as I talk about it with my students, people are really interested to tell you when they think you want to know. Um, and that combined with humor, I, I agree with the first two gentlemen who spoke about humor, because when you combine those two things together, I don't know, for me, they really work. Also, I think just, um, acknowledging wherever they're at too and just letting them feel heard and knowing that it's okay where I mean that's already kind of been mentioned but when it also comes to like you just don't want to be here or you really have no interest in talking to me right now do you all right you know so I think that also helps and then um even then sometimes you can get a smile and then you can go into the humor and, and then hearing Gina mention adolescence reminded me of a funny but true story. My very first practicum in my master's program was working with adolescents. And of course, most of them didn't want to be there. They were mandated. And my first supervisor, one of her self-care techniques was to build like things out of Legos. And anytime she had an adolescent that was really resistive, she would give them the Lego figurine and they could smash it. And that was her in to get adolescents when they get to break stuff. They seem to like you. So... That's something I've always kept in my back pocket. Yeah, Stephen, Jenga was my thing with clients um, in particular, and, and particularly because I'm so bad at it, right? So they get to win. Um, so Jenga is a lot of fun. I think games are a really good way to go about things if, if someone's defensive or in that posture, particularly with adolescents. Uh, I know with people in general, my go-to is, uh, you know, sarcasm, Um you know, just self-deprecation, like usually a good way to mellow that defensiveness out. But I really like what Elliot said about the one down posture. That's usually something that needs to happen, uh, at least for me, or I find to be really effective. I've got a question that came in from uh, Fran and Jack Clifton. Um, give three words you would put on the back of a counselor educator t-shirt. Something that would symbolize what most of us are here working in. First one that came up, I hear you. <laughs> I think for me, the first one will be check the syllabus. Um, because most of my answers to students are check the syllabus. So that just could. <laughs> and with that, Stephen, read my email. 
I'm having trouble getting it down to three words. You know, uh, I think they're supposed to be self. Uh, you know, they stand alone. They're not connected in a sentence. Um, but uh, I'm struggling with that one. But what Jimmy just gave me is it's all good. Still junior faculty. <laughs> not your counselor. Not your daddy. Uh. <laughs> I have one that isn't necessarily about counselor education, but one I wish I could wear to the office, check my contract. Because as a graduate student, they forget we work 20 hours a week for 15 weeks and that's it. Uh, so yeah, I would put check my contract. Please employ me. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was gonna be, I don't know. That way I could just point because I feel like I would have more occasion to use it than not. I'm, I'm waiting to hear from some cheerful, uplifting theme in three words to conceptualize counselors, counselor education. And I'm getting uh, all of this relevant stuff. Oh, I'm wounded, Marty. It's all good is not cheerful. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll go with that. I feel like he wants me to say three emojis and I don't know how to how to say that. Smiley face, heart. I, I don't know. Good attempt, Eric. All right, we'll roll on to another question um, from a Angelica April. What is your most commonly used phrase in progress notes or teaching with your students? I'll go with this one first, trust the process. I'll go second, it depends. Just a lot of assisted client or explored with client. Yeah, <laughs> all the variants. I guess for product uh, progress notes, I would say use reflective listening. And then for students in class, because the department said so. Elliot, you took mine. I'm usually the queen of it depends, but I also say frequently, welcome to the field of ambiguity. It's one of my catchphrases. That's a better one. I'm adding on it's contextual. That's my new way of saying, well, new, like in the past few years of it depends, but I also have a tendency to say like after a very long rant that has gone off like on another direction and then comes back finally to whatever the original question was, is does that make sense as they're all just like staring oh, yeah. at me? Um, and then I usually start laughing and I'm like, okay, probably time to back that train up for a second, you know, but yeah. Does that make sense? I do that a lot too. I, yeah, that comes up a lot. 
What is that? Is that our sense of like totally lost this group or we're totally out of it or we're just trying to connect in some way? I think it's a connection thing because we start telling a story because the question stimulated that story and they get captivated by that for a second, but then they remember that they asked a question and we remember they asked a question and we try to get back to it, but whoo, that circle gets big sometimes. Well, at least it does for me, you know, and Elliot, we've talked about this on the show before of, you know, sort of the ADHD brain of like, there are connections there, but, and we will get back there most likely, but it's going to take a hot minute to make it happen. <laughs> But it reminded me of another one, too. When I answer a question in a roundabout way, I'll say, did that make it better or worse? Yeah, my response, Elliot, was going to be, was that helpful? Because I, I do that a lot. I'll, I'll get into an explanation and then uh, admittedly sometimes lose the question and then come back to them with a genuine, was that helpful? And I actually have to like couch that and sometimes that happens and I want to make sure what I said actually provided you with a response that was helpful. I just want to echo the, does that make sense, uh, Jen? I, that, that, I use it to see if students are tracking, um, you know, and I, I, that's like an everyday classroom thing. And the, the big classroom thing for me is it's about learning, not grades especially in master's level classes or early on. I said those, as you get to know me, you'll know it's about learning, not grades. Yeah, I want to echo that. I always tell students, no one's ever asked me what, to see my GPA before they came in to see me. So like, I want you to learn something. So yeah, the book stuff is great, but at the end of the day, I know a lot of people with 4.0s who are horrible therapists. So it's not, a, it's not just about the grade, it's about learning something. So I go back to that over and over again. That, that's usually after they didn't get an A in my class, but that's that's neither here nor there, though. <laughs> name names, Michael. Name names. <laughs> Don't name names. Sorry, FERPA, FERPA. I, I like that, Michael. I think one thing that I started asking students my first semester is, what do you need? And that has helped really inform my teaching style because they may not need me to lecture at them for three hours. They might need to just have a conversation about a specific topic. Or maybe they disagree with the theory and you think it's stupid. Sure, tell me why you think it's stupid. Let's talk about it. And I think that's been some of the best teaching I've done when I've let students tell me what they need from me. So what do you need is one of the questions I ask pretty often. I've got a question from Molly Stern. Um, if you practiced as a counselor or other helping professional, what client behavior or presenting problem vexed you the most? Well, for me, I, I just always remember this one client I had three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, three o'clock in the afternoon, afternoon, you're tired. And she was just so detached from her feelings. And that only thing that would keep me awake would be when she started talking about feelings. And so I just would sit there and have to try and stay awake and then try to somehow get her to talk about feelings so I would be more interested in what she was saying. And I always felt like, Felt badly about that. Well, I worked okay with her, I think. So for me, this was back to my very, this was initially when I was in an internship. So I had just been starting out. I had been doing counseling as a practicum student for about, you know, nine months maybe. So I was still very, very fresh. And I had a client come in and sat down. And again, I worked with some angsty teenagers. So that's the setting. And this teen came down, came in and sat down 
and gave me the whole like cross-armed, I'm not going to talk to you kind of situation. And I started doing the intake assessment and this client looked at me and just said, I hate therapists. I come to therapists to make your life miserable. So here I am. And that was one of the most challenging. I stopped. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to respond type of situations. Um, but it ended up being a really good one because it, it, that ended up being a really, really strong client. Uh, so it could work out. I would uh, probably add to the mix. And this is, again, this is one that personally vexes me. Um, uh, clients who want to talk about other people's problems, not their own. So the ones who are projecting on other people or want to focus on other people, um, those are the ones that it's like, okay, we're going to do this dance for a while. And that too, I think for me, when working with minors, it's not the minors generally that are vexing, but the parents oftentimes um, and kind of seem to hinder or at least make it make what I'm doing less productive, make what the client is trying to accomplish less feasible. And it's, it's frustrating. Um, But not the client sometimes, but the parents for sure. I always found it tough for clients that came in and wanted the miracle scenario, the fix me, um, you know, I, I'm ready for this to be over, you know, and, and you have that sense of wanting to be, you know, really helpful and there and connected. And, uh, you know, you try and work through that, you know, that they're the ones making the changes. We're not the ones doing the fixing. Right. And, and that's not something they came for. And it's this kind of customer, idea they have in their head that I come in, you fix me, I leave and I'm good. Um, that just doesn't, it seems to permeate. Right. And and I know I've had a couple of situations that stick in my head of clients that just couldn't get there in terms of taking ownership or or having that, that want to, to motivate, to change. And, And those are always really tough, I think. I've got one, but I feel like it's a, it's sort of a downer, but it, it is vexing. I was working, I worked in addictions for many, many years. I was working at a treatment center with a young adult who was coming in and looked jaundiced and was having uh, respiratory problems. And I was trying to get a medical consult to work with him. Um, and he was working in a cookhouse, a meth cookhouse. And so I found that out when I went to do a home visit and that sort of thing and actually took some fumes in the face. And so his, his physical problems were a function of manufacturing drugs, which turned into a whole other thing. But I couldn't figure out when I was asking him about his physical symptoms and I wasn't getting any positive drug screens or anything related to that. So that, that one always stayed in my mind. So finally, took care of it, uh, uh, you know, took care of it, but I could never get the diagnosis or figure out the comorbidities. I am going to jump to, we've got quite a few questions coming in, but I am going to jump to what I think could be a quick question for everybody, um, unless you want to sit with this for a while. Um, And this again comes from Joseph Martin, uh, trying to get a little off the serious end. Uh, What would you rather have to sleep? What would you rather have to sleep in 
bed-sized lasagna for a week or be shipped overnight to a random location? I'll definitely shipped overnight to a random location, hands down. Type of sauce for lasagna? It, it, it doesn't indicate it. Maybe it's uh, it's a sleeper's choice. Definitely lasagna. Why, why is the sauce relevant to you sleeping in food for a week? And how many sauces? Like a nice velvety Alfredo, Stephen. <laughs> is there an Alfredo lasagna I don't know about? You know... Eric, I was sure. thinking the same thing. If it was a white sauce, sauce. Do thank it. you. If it was a red sauce, <laughs> I would. Vegetable lasagna is, yeah, that, there you go. Vegetable lasagna. That's where you get the white sauce. I hear, I hear my wife throwing stuff upstairs, right? Because she's watching and she's throwing things. Uh, my wife is Italian, you know, second generation. So she's, I've, I'll get her opinion, but I'm scared for when the show's over. <laughs> Well, I, she might I, be chucking I, your chucking your sweater vests out the window. <laughs> they might be on the wall. That's a lot. I did have this image of just like you know being able to like snuggle into some like mascarpone or like ricotta. Like that would be quite comfortable. I don't know, but okay, the appeal so, of being shipped is 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 great now given COVID. Like that sounds great. Would Would you be able to get at least eight hours of sleep if you were shipped, or do you like lose sleep in the travel time? Oh, I, I could sleep anywhere. I fell asleep on a ladder once. I mean, it wouldn't bother me. <laughs> I want to know how you're being how shipped and how long it takes before I made my decision. I've got another question. This oh, is uh, from Fox and Socks. Uh, and I'll answer it. How can you tell the difference between someone who's lying versus someone who's nervous? Uh, that's easy. My mouth is moving. There's a great show I just started watching called Lie to Me. It talks about, I just, it's amazing. I see some of you shaking your heads. It's quite interesting. And they talk about nonverbals and they show all nonverbals. Whoever writes that show really has a handle on nonverbals. So uh, I don't have an answer, but I know the guy on the show does. I kind of don't care. Like if we're talking about clients, I figure clients tell the truth when they're, when the relationship is strong enough for them to tell the truth. So like, when clients lie to me and, you know, I haven't worked with clients in several years. So clients lie to me, eh, they'll tell the truth eventually, maybe, hopefully, you know, whatever. Um, students, sometimes I wish they would lie to me because there seems to be this trend of like way too much truth telling sometimes. If any of my students are watching, I don't even know what to say about that. But sometimes like I, I you know, I'm, I'm an exer, So I'm like, please come up with a well-timed excuse. Like, don't tell me what actually happened um, because there are some times where I just don't want to know. Um, but if you're cheating and I catch you, that's a whole nother story. We don't deal, I don't deal with a lot of that, but, um, usually it's just pretty dang obvious, um, in terms of that's the kind of lies that I think I deal with the most are some untruths when it comes to assignments, um, and how they were produced or in what timeline they were produced. I've mentioned before my affinity for existential counseling approaches. And I think a Nietzsche, the greatest lies we tell are the lies we tell ourselves. And so like, yeah, lying, nervous. But if the person contradicts themselves over the course of a couple sessions, then I've got a sense that, oh, they're lying to themselves. So that gives me a direction. I think for my students, I can tell that they're lying when it doesn't make sense. So 
You know, for example, I had one last semester who had to take a COVID test on, for both the midterm and the final. And that just, you know, more than likely you're not telling the truth. It's like, dude, just, just take the exam. You've got six hours. It's 50 questions. Make it work. But in therapy, I don't, honestly, it's not really a big deal if clients are lying. Sort of like Elliot said, eventually either it'll come out or they'll realize that they're just lying to themselves. Because it doesn't change what I have to do at the end of the 50 minutes if you tell the truth or if you lie. In most cases, I just let it happen. All right. Another question from Gary S. And um, I'll put it out there and see what your reaction is. What should I believe? Why should I believe a therapist who I've never met can help me? Well, I would, I would say that, you know, part of my own therapeutic approach is if I believe I can help the person, I, I tell them that. That comes from Jerome Bruner, pers well, Persuasion and Healing, I believe. Uh, and uh, he did it. The latest edition, I believe, was with his daughter. But they both said, you know, if, if you really feel you can help the person, that you can accentuate the, the hope factor by telling them that. Uh, and if you don't think you can, then, then referral would likely be the, the next course of action. It sounded to me like the question was more from, can I, how can I believe a therapist can help me? From that perspective, I would say you, you, can't, you don't know if therapists can help you. I think there are a lot of bad therapists out there. And it, it's something you have to go and kind of feel out for yourself. Well, and I think on our side of it is that we can't expect clients to trust us the minute they walk in the door. I mean, the things that we talk about and that we teach students to talk about with clients and all those kinds of things, we're really open people. And so we get very comfortable with those topics. And sometimes I think that we forget that this is new to some clients, like they have never walked in the door before. Um, so I think there is that healthy dose of like remembering that this person who's walking in the door, like that we know you shouldn't trust us. And in fact, like I would say, don't trust us immediately because not every counselor therapist out there has the best intentions. I'd say most of them do, but you know, you got to use your own gut of whether or not this person is going to be a match for you. It's like, I tell the students, it's like, if somebody cut your hair in a way that you didn't like, would you go back to that person? Um, and I think that, you know, we can say that to clients too, like you've got to find the right fit for you and it might not be me. And I am more than happy to help you figure out and give referrals and try to get somebody who's, you know, going to be a better fit for you than me. I, um, so I think that you shouldn't trust that blindly going in because I think so much of it also depends on you as a client. You have to believe that you can help yourself because a lot of it comes from, the client, right? I can't motivate someone to help themselves if they don't want to. And I think that's something that I also, also often tell my students and something that I also tell myself a lot as a clinician that it's not solely up to me to fix this person. And so I would say, don't, don't trust it. Trust yourself going into that. And this is Elliot again. My brain gave me a correction. I think the book was by Jerome Frank, not Jerome Bruner. Sorry about that. I would say that the phrase that pops into my mind is is don't trust anything, but but I think it's good to be open to the fact that 
you know, you don't really have to care about what therapists know or, or, or what they're going to say until you know that they care. I like that. I like that phrase. And that's really what the relationship's about. And it's about building that. And so be skeptical. Okay, I've got a question from Gavin, who um, actually it was asking for suggestions about transitions from teaching middle schoolers to high schoolers, but it was also a question about relationships. So I'm taking the second part of the question and tossing that out to the group. Having a background in counseling, how do I balance solid relationships, both personal and professional, um, in a new environment? In this case, I think he's going to work with high schoolers. But just how do you balance with a with a, a background in counseling? How do you balance relationships, both personal and professional? I think that's a great question. And I think it sort of goes back to Stephanie describing a really good informed consent statement. And even though it's not a counseling relationship, it's still you telling them, hey, this is what I can and can't do. These are the services I can offer. This is what we can do to make this work. So even if you're working with high school students in a teaching capacity versus a therapeutic capacity, going over what they can expect from you, even if it's something as simple as these are the students I'm willing to write a letter recommendation for. These are the expectations for your assignments. And I think being open and honest up front starts that foundation where they can begin to trust you, begin to openly communicate with you. Yeah, I, I think about role. And what that understanding is amongst everybody. And, and it makes me think of my wife after I got my PhD, I was super proud. And we run into somebody at the grocery store and she's like, my husband finished his PhD, he's Dr. Perry now. Um, and the, the woman cuts her off and she's like, well, I have this thing on my arm that I don't know what it is. And she's like, no, 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 no. And we both are like, no, not that kind of doctor, right? Um, I think it's really important to have those conversations and really you know, really outline what it is I'm doing here, right? No matter what that relationship is, this is my role. This is where we sit. And, you know, being comfortable having those open conversations, you know, I, I don't go golf with my buddies and be like, listen, before we golf, I, I want you to understand that we're friends and nothing more before we begin this game. But, you know, there's, there's times and places for that, particularly in personal and professional relationships where you need to be really open and clear about what that means. So it's kind of a silly way to explain it, but it's the first thing that comes to my mind. So Eric, that, that just reminded me of a quick story. I was on a plane going to Miami and I was sitting next to this woman and for like two hours, she's talking to me and I'm just doing some reflective listening and she's spilling her guts. And after like two hours, she says, what do you do? And I said, oh, I teach counseling. And she says, oh, can I talk to you about my problems? And she's been, she's been doing that the whole time. I never tell anyone what I do at 25,000 feet unless it's like a 30 minute commuter flight between like when I was living in living in uh, Blacksburg. So between Atlanta and Roanoke, that's about like the amount of time that I'm willing to tell somebody what I do for a living in an aircraft. Otherwise, no, I teach. What do you teach? School, headphones. I'm still a shift leader at Arby's sometimes. So, I mean, I, I just, if it gets me peace, you know, that's what I am today. 
Yeah. Sometimes you have that sense, right, Eric, where, I mean, I've been a shift leader at Checkers still. I've been a bartender, although bartender, man, people want to tell you their problems when they hear bartender. So I especially don't tell them my first career because that, you know, that opens a whole door of how much people hate the church. And I'm like, look, we could do that too, but I'm not interested. Bye. My secret is I will always keep Stata pulled up on my computer on a flight. So if somebody makes conversation, what do you do? I'll just show them lines of statistical programming language and they will leave me alone for the rest of the flight. Random numbers, good way to go. Just a comment about the question before we move on. Uh, <laughs> I tell people I'm a jazz drummer on the flights, by the way. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, to the question of how, uh, challenge the word balance for starters. I, th this is a thing, balance, I don't know what that is. Challenge that word and also challenge yourself. Do you know when you put your counselor hat on and when you take it off? You know, because if you if you think a little bit deeper than than what does balance mean, it's almost like a paradox. And and you know, we, when we talk about you know roles and things like that, some sort of a cue. You know, I, I I say hat on and off. So I put the question back on the person to to maybe take a look at some of those things. Somebody in the chat room said, uh, say you're an accountant. Uh, nobody asks questions when you say you're an accountant. Um, I suggest know a few enough words of German or some foreign language to confuse the individual and then put your headset on. Yeah, say, um, uh, like, uh, uh, yeah, four years of German in high school pays off when you're on an airplane. Um, Just say next structural question. equation modeling, they'll stop. Structural equation modeling and factor analysis, they'll leave you alone. I promise. Yeah. Um, next question comes from Andrea. And what's been your most awkward teaching experience or most rewarding teaching experience in your career to date? So you, you got an option here of awkward or uh, rewarding. I think I can go ahead and jump in. So we talked about my re most rewarding interaction last time I was here. So the most awkward is we were doing introductions and I think individual counseling techniques. And there was somebody in my class who already had a PhD in clinical psychology. And so we're talking, I'm like, yeah, you know, here are the areas that I'm really experienced in. And I set my education and then she went last and said, oh, by the way, I earned my PhD in clinical psychology. Thanks for stealing the wind out of my sails. I appreciate it. Very awkward. And why were they there, Stephen? That was that was my question. <laughs> and so she wasn't degree seeking. So it was, I think, just taking a class so she could be licensed in Ohio. Because Ohio's licensure requirements are just ridiculous for everybody. And I like to do a smile and nod for like 30 seconds and said, okay, well, I feel like she's going to challenge everything I say for the next six weeks. This is going to be exciting. I think, I think for me in, uh, in the nineties, Kent state had a very robust uh, continuing education uh, program. And for two years, two summers, uh, my mentor and a friend of mine and I did a psychodrama, sociodrama workshop. And we had a uh, granddaughter of one of the Tuskegee subjects in the workshop. And we, we did a sociodrama on the, about 
uh, caste in American society and racism and the Tuskegee. And uh, my, at that time, soon to be partner, just took it kind of as a whim because she needed a, a credit to get out of university. So she's kind of freaked out and is like, what in the hell are you guys doing? And then, you know, we're building the tension, building the tension, and then we're reversing the roles. And I had no clue if we were doing the right thing at the time. Uh, it resolved beautifully, but it was frankly quite terrifying in the moment. And uh, the resolution was was quite beautiful. So uh, Gideon's got to leave us. Um, so he's got to he's got to run. So uh, thank you for joining us, and hope you, you come all. back soon. Yeah, thank you all. It's uh, seven o'clock here on the West Coast, so my my stomach is grumbling for lasagna that I can go dive into and take a nap. So <laughs> yes. Okay, Ed, thank you're you up next. Yeah, I, this is not going to be politically correct, but this is a true story. Um, so this was a long time ago. I was teaching a workshop on something, and there's a very obese woman in the workshop, uh, morbidly obese. And, and during the break, she said, you know, I'm not feeling well. I, and I said, well, if you need to leave, it's not, not a problem. And she doesn't leave. And she comes back to, after the uh, break. And I'm talking for like two minutes, and she starts to throw up. And... It's like she doesn't stop throwing up. And it's just coming out and it's coming out. And, it's, and I'm standing there and I literally just was frozen. I did not, usually I'm good in crises, but I just did not know what to do. And um, had a couple of uh, teachers in the, uh, in the workshop and they, they were wonderful and they, they took care of her. But that was probably my most embarrassing moment. Let's wow. shut everyone else up, huh? So I was going to say, you didn't ask her for a whopper thin mint, did you? <laughs> <laughs> My bad. It's always appropriate for Monty Python. Monty Python, yeah. Um, okay, I've got another question. This comes from Lois. What's the most challenging part about transitioning from being a doctoral student to a counselor educator? can I answer this one? <laughs> uh, that PTSD that you experienced uh, from, from uh, finishing it, I just finished last summer. And every time I look at, even think about writing, I'm like, ah, oh, I, I don't want to do it. I mean, even grading, I, it's, it has something to do with writing. So I don't want to do it. So I think for me, that's the best have been the biggest transition for me is afraid to look at to reading thing because like somebody's gonna be looking at it and I'm, it's just i just freeze up and so grading right now is not fun uh not that it ever has been fun but it's worse now because i have that postdoctoral ptsd um and my therapist is not really helping me with it at all so it, yeah that's be that's been the biggest transition for me is <laughs> is going from that whole thing of writing is not anything i even want can desire to do but it's kind of required so non-clinical but but they probably should be on that <laughs> like oh they probably should be helpful I, I think for me it was more about uh finances and okay i had like i don't know thirty thousand dollars of student loans i was teaching part-time at three universities i was trying to get a full-time position uh and i was trying to do some writing to you know build the resume um 
but there was a lot of just financial stress and insecurity. And for me, that was a big challenge. I haven't really reached being fully, uh, you know, graduated and teaching yet. However, um, I think it's just the role and changing a role in general and feeling comfortable as an instructor versus a student and to get out of your head kind of thinking like a student and feeling that way rather than taking on that responsibility or kind of just, it's a different role and it's a different mindset. So just transitioning into that mindset takes a little time. Eventually you're going to want to be a student again. So. Yeah. For me, I think it was um, coming from uh, the student uh, place of working 40 hour plus work weeks um, as a clinician and going to school in the evenings and doing that work on the weekend to uh, realizing that I didn't have to show up at the office every morning at eight o'clock. Um, it was weird because that had, was so ingrained into my, my work process. I wouldn't say that's difficult. That's just something I'm, I'm really aware of. I think what was difficult for me was um, with a student, as a student, there are times you can shut off parts of your life. And for me, I could do that. I'm not going to speak for anybody else. But as a as a first year assistant professor, I could not shut off professor um, anytime. So that was difficult in that transition, and it stayed that way for a couple of years. So, so I haven't graduated yet, but I'm finishing up, and just looking at the job market and what universities expect and what they expect to pay me is exhausting and terrifying. Um, some schools are like, yeah, we want you to have a PhD and years of experience. We want you to teach four classes a semester and we're gonna pay you $12 in free lunch. And that is anxiety inducing. I'm terrified. We're not gonna have a federal government that's willing to forgive my loans, even though I've given hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours of free therapy. Yeah, I'm wondering if I can get another PhD. Stay in school. Who's giving you lunch? Um, Where are you getting? We don't get lunch. Oh, I think he's getting lasagna. If I recall, (laughs) I think it's slept in lasagna. That might be a thing with four different sauces that are making second generation Italian women angry. I think we have a show title slept in lasagna. It's got to be week old slept in slept in lasagna is a week. So, yeah. Exhausting. Uh, you, you know, I think the challenge for me is unique, but my partner and I are both counselor educators. So finding two jobs required us to move a lot. And it was both the move and the adjustment, but it was also both both of us finding satisfying jobs at institutions. Um, no joke. Uh, relocation and things like that, you know, uh, that come along with all that. I think it's sort of a, a weird little niche for two folks who are working together on the job, but that sort of like double or triple duty. I've got another question. If uh, This comes from Chantrell, who's uh, been with us in the chat room for a while. I've posed a couple of questions. How do you continually foster your professional identity? I guess that means not talking to anybody on planes, uh, 
but uh, perhaps you have other ideas. I think it's a natural extension of the work that we do. I mean, I, I see my professional identity coming out in my research and my teaching and my service and my supervision, you know. I, I mean, I feel like all of those activities, but also, I mean, I hate to sound like totally nerdy here, but I think just sort of my interactions with people in life in general, because my, you know, we're in a culture where people are always like, what do you do? And so there's always that conversation when meeting somebody for the first time. But, you know, it is difficult, I think, when the tool of your profession is largely yourself. So when you're largely the tool of your profession, it, it's, it's hard not to enact that counselor identity. And that's why, you know, we're not telling people what we do on airplanes because we want to break from it for five minutes or five hours across the ocean or whatever the case may be, because, you know, as much as we love it and it's, it's coming out constantly and in the things that we do, sometimes I personally, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I personally just need to step back from it and just be Jen. I don't want to be Dr. Cook for five minutes. I want to remember what my first name is. And I want to remember that on airplanes, I want to either read a novel or listen to old school and play Candy Crush and be left the hell alone. Um, and I think that that's kind of our self, our right and our self-care in, in the midst of it, which I guess we could argue, or I will argue is a part of our counselor identity. Well, I'll say I'm shade about professional identity because I'm licensed as a clinical counselor. I'm licensed as a psychologist. I see the non-medical mental health professionals as really one big group that ought to get together and be kicking the ass of organized psychiatry. And yet I know I'm a minority voice on this. Um, but I'm also, I, as I alluded to in the last response to the last question, I'm fairly mercenary. If I've got to earn a living or if I've got to earn a certain amount of money, I'll figure out a way to do it. And I encourage my students to do the same thing. So while I recognize the unique contributions of the non-medical mental health professionals, I myself see much more overlap than I see uniqueness. Except in psychiatry. You don't see the overlap in psychiatry. Well, that's a medical mental health professional. And But is there not any overlap there also? Not very much when you look at the problem is most psychiatrists have the same student loans as their friends who went into oncological surgery and they can't charge as much per hour. So they get trapped in seven to 10 minute med checks. I only know a few psychiatrists who actually do therapy. One of them was magna cum laude in biochemistry at Yale and his family had means. And he was like, yeah, I, I believe in therapy and I don't focus on the meds. But I think many of them, because of our, our, our for-profit healthcare system and our for-profit uh, student loan system, and because we don't even know the ideology of these things, they get trapped in these tunnels. Sorry, we bit of a digression and a rant there. I'll stop. Well, I tend to, I, I tend to agree with you, but I also want to embrace the part of psychiatry where there is, is that overlap. And uh, just so we can have some commonality with our distant cousins. When I agree with you, Ed, the, the person who treated my ADHD for years, we spent an hour every other week talking about everything from art to beauty to science. And then, okay, you're not going to be able to take these meds forever. How are you going to transition? And how are you going to take what we've learned and put it back into your brain as it is? So I, I do hear you.
We're still talking about identity, Marty. Yeah, go ahead. Start while we're talking about. I, was, I, I don't like it when I don't like it when mom and dad fight. <laughs> I want okay. Uh, you know, I, I guess when I speak it for myself, I think the things I'm most proud of are when I think about identities. I think about my personal or cultural identities. I think about my identities as a musician. I think about being a husband. I think about my adoptive family, and I just can't imagine doing this work without it coming or flowing from who you are as a person. And and uh, just for me, I have to be mindful not to take it too seriously. I mean, I do, but that that I don't wear the hat all the time and that becomes who I am. I, that's exhausting. I'd rather, I like to think of myself as, as a person first with those identities and then think about how it makes its way into my career. That keeps me from feeling like I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, I'm going to borrow a little bit from the cooler, Eric, and, and just say that the hat, I don't know, doesn't ever really come off in a lot of situations. You know, I'm, I'm really involved locally uh, with the schools and, and do a lot of uh, sessions with parenting and, and just, you know, I'm never really not in that role, right? And I, I think everyone who's close to me knows what I do and that I engage with knows what I do, but it's not all that I do. It's not all that there is about me. And like Jen said, part of what we do is protect and, and ensure we have that self-care. But I think whenever I'm engaged in activities that feel like they have that that line or, or have that connection with the field, uh, I bring that hat with me and at least halfway have it on. Which I don't know is a cool way to wear it or not, um, but that's kind of how it comes through, right? It is, it is part of who I am and, and part of what I do and what I engage in outside of my normal responsibility. Something else. Enough, oh, go ahead, Gina. I, I was just going to say, so as, and this kind of relates to what Stephen was saying earlier, I'm in the job search phase of the dissertation finishing process with the PhD. And talking about professional identity, I think this job process and doing a dissertation has really helped to solidify some of that. And I think it's helped to bring to the forefront what I want to make my professional identity. And it's really helped hammer out some of those details and helped me articulate that both in job applications and in writing a methodology and doing all that kind of stuff. So you know, as, as stressful as it is, Stephen, I'm right there with you on that. Uh, it's, it's definitely been an interesting exercise in professional identity. So I think that that's just something, a byproduct of this PTSD, as Michael, you mentioned. If I could just go from maybe the beginning of a person's career to I'm more at the end of my career and how, how it, my professional identity, I'm always having to reform it. And have to and I have to do things that I haven't done before because they, things just get old. So, like in a couple of weeks, I'm going to a uh, conference on a learning dis- assessment for learning disabilities, only because I never did it before, and I and so I'm interested in it. So um, I think it changes as we go through our go through our professional life. Next question comes from we're we're probably got a couple of more questions, and then we'll we'll call it a night. I've got a closer for us to think about. Uh, but the next question comes from Philip, who I think brought us the lasagna question, because this is another food question. Um, what is a dessert you've never had but really want? 
And I'll answer that first. It's the next dessert. Um, I've never really had the next dessert, but that's the one I want. Uh, and a side note, uh, recently in the last couple of weeks, Aileen has uh, retired, so she's home all the time. And uh, is we're constantly having uh, conversation about things. And um, one of the things that she uh, that she and I talk about now is food and food prep. And I have got her and kind of hooked on watching Great British Bake Off. So now I'm seeing all of these desserts that I really want to try. I don't know if I want to try and make them. Um, but that's sort of our side bit of entertainment. Anybody else? Dessert you haven't had, but well, really Well, on want. this season of the British Bake Off, they made something called pond pudding that looked totally disgusting and totally fabulous at the same time. And even with all of the time I've spent in the UK, this is not a steamed pudding that I've ever had. It has a whole lemon inside of it. Um, I don't know. It's just bizarre. It's like one of the, it's the, it's one of those, you know, wartime kind of, um, desserts that I think comes from, you know, kind of the Sussex area. Um, if I'm remembering it's called, Sus I think it's Sussex pond pudding is what it's called. So yeah. Anyway, I, I mean, I've tried a lot of desserts, but you know, I don't know any, it's made with a, I'll stop, but at any rate, somebody else go, but I'm interested. <laughs> uh, bananas foster at Brennan's in new Orleans. Had it. It's great. <laughs> you know, I've known Marty for a while now, and, you know, we've gone through several times going over Thanksgivings together. And for several years at Thanksgiving, he talks about making this Turkish dessert that I can't even describe it because every time it just makes my brain melt with wanting to eat it. And I have never seen this fable dessert i've heard about it sorry that's that's the one i really want to try and my daughter apparently is online watching and she said i should i should say cannelli and i don't even know what it is it's a very good french dessert she says oh and i guess that's what i, I have to. was it was a cannoli no it's cannelli I've had cannoli, but I, I don't know. I, I guess I'll go now too, Ed, since I walked into this. Um, I, I'm kind of in Marty's boat. I've I've tried most of the desserts that have crossed my my path. Um, I don't generally turn them down, um, so I, I can't really think of one that comes to mind that I haven't tried that that I've been really engaged or interested in. Um, but I'm ready for the next one. Guess I could jump in. I really want to try a flambe of some sort. I don't even care what kind it is. I just want to watch them set the dessert on fire at my table. That's really the only reason I want to try it. I, I don't know if it's going to be good or not. I just think it'd be cool to watch something burn off alcohol before I eat it. Yeah, I, I echo a lot of what everyone has said. I am always waiting for the next dessert. And I rarely let one slip by me. Um, but Jen, going back to the Great British Bake Off, there are so many desserts on there that I have have wanted to try and want to try to bake, but um, I don't do baking very well. So we've made one cheesecake as a result of watching the Great British Bake Off, and it was phenomenal, but uh, my partner did most of it. So 
We'll leave it at that. Got another question uh, from Angelica. What suggestions do you have on how to handle imposter syndrome? I guess that's within ourselves. Well, just go through your stack of bills and add up how much you need to earn. And that imposter syndrome will drop away fairly quick. That That's definitely one approach. <laughs> I think what's really helped me, this might be, this might sound uh, like I'm tooting my own horn, but any day I really feel like I'm not doing well or I don't deserve to be where I am or these, these award nominations are nonsense, I'll pull up my CV because those are things I have done and there's a record of it. And so that has helped me out. And I actually got that from Elliot, who sat me down after I talked for the first time and said, hey, let's look at your uh, reviews. And the numbers were low to me, but they were, they were like fours and fives. So I thought they were out of 10 and I did a terrible job. And he really sat me down and explained I was OK. So actually looking at my previous accomplishments has helped me. I kind of take the approach of getting used to it. It's going to be there. And I'm going to feel it and it's normal. And so I kind of just accept it <laughs> to a degree. And the more time that I go by in a certain role, then the, the more it kind of fades away over time. It's, it, and it comes up stronger sometimes than others, but just kind of understanding it is imposter syndrome and that that's all it is. Just a feeling. It's not reality. I think one of the things that, that helped me is you know, I've written some theories books and I've written some real extensive biographies about these theorists, which when I was younger, I thought they were, they just knew everything. And now I realize they didn't know a lot and they, in a way they were all imposters. And so it's kind of made me realize that we all are imposters. We know some, and there's a lot we don't know. And that's, we'll go through life like that. Uh, I think something else too. Oh, sorry, Marty. Go ahead, Gina. I was just going to say, I think something else um, that's helped me. So I've, I've been teaching for a few years now. And when I first started teaching as a very early doc student, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. And something that's helped me along the way has been authenticity, just letting people see who I am and not being ashamed of that letting people know where I'm at in my career. And, you know, again, there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. That's just where I'm at. Um, and like Ed, what you were just saying too, a lot of people don't know and that's okay. Uh, and students don't know either. So that's also a good thing. So I think having that authenticity. And I'll add on the same in terms of the authenticity part and also sharing it with others. Like there's, some of you who are um, on the podcast that we've had some pretty deep, long conversations about what it means to be long, to belong in this profession and what it means to be, you know, first generation in your family or to be, you know, a person of color, to be a female or, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, kind of, I think when we share in that, those moments with others who are in those same moments at different points, maybe for same reasons, maybe for different reasons, it's been really powerful, I think, for me in terms of like getting out of my own crap, um, because that's what imposter syndrome feels like. It's like being in my own crap, but it's like crap that society put on me to be like, for some reason, you're not good enough because you're first gen or because you're female or, you know, make the list, you know, 
you're not smart enough. They're going to find out that you got to get ripped out of here. It's like, okay, well, that's why I just own it and say, you know, I have an average IQ, 99, sometimes a hundred on a good day. You know, I mean, and guess what? We can all still do our jobs. Like you don't need a IQ of 140. Those of you who have that bless you. Um, you can do your job too. Um, all of us are welcome at this table. And when we share in these conversations, I, I, and I want to, I don't know who asked this question, but I want to give that out there to you all um, to connect with other people so that you can kind of break your own silence. Because as soon as you break that silence, it goes away. Well, not completely, but you know what I'm saying? Um, I had thought about this question when it first came up and the only thing that I draw upon, and I, I wouldn't say this is true for working with clients with me. I don't try to overstep, you know, what my abilities were when working with clients, but often working in systems or working in, um, uh, I worked for the city of Chicago for a while. Um, people would come and say, Hey, can you do this? And I was the last person I thought they would ask to come for me to, to do that. And so my, I, I learned to kind of trust in myself a little bit and figure if they were asking me to do it, they didn't have any good strategy themselves to think about it. So the worst that I can get out of this situation is to go and try and figure out how to do it or why we can't do it and come back with, and, or if I can, then do it uh, and come back with that information. So I uh, kind of fighting imposter syndrome by realizing that people coming to you with their needs, generally it's because they don't have an idea on how to address it. Um, and that's kind of gotten me into successfully being involved in projects um, through my career. So I have one okay, final. If I go to. Yeah, go ahead. Go there, yeah, sorry. You know, I want to say some stuff. Um, uh, you know, I think the, at least speaking from a faculty perspective in academia, I think I think the system is sort of rigged to feed imposter syndrome. So I'm not just try, trying to give it all away. I know I have my own responsibilities within it, but that, you know, when I feel imposter syndrome, I'm, I'm doubting myself. Um, I might have, uh, you know, people in my department that are publishing more than me that are, that are in different departments and things like that, but they're constantly moving through and working basically independently with long periods in between the time that you get evaluated, you know? And so you, you spend a lot of time alone and working, dealing with yourself, seeing and thinking, imagine everybody around you is smarter or better. I appreciate your comments, Jen, you know, uh, and, and th this is the game. The game is, is rigged lots of time alone. So you just have to see it for what it is. Cause it is like that way. It's not fair for a lot of reasons. And there's a lot of levels institutionally, you know, you also mentioned that we don't have to get into that right now, but this is the game. And so, you know, believing in yourself, that authenticity and, and, and keep, keep it moving. And, and you have to understand what's going through your mind when you're in script, you have to understand, you know, what the target is. And that's, that's hard too. Um, so if you feel overwhelmed by it, that's because that that's the environment that you're in. <laughs> that's part of, that's part of developing those chops. Okay, I've got a final question. We've been at it for close to 90 minutes uh, with the false start and all. So here's a, here's a final question. Is there a classic movie or album 
that you keep telling yourself that you will eventually experience it, but somehow you haven't yet? Uh, deep purple burn. I'm afraid to reveal this, but um, the Godfather. Wow, I don't feel so bad about my answer now. Um, I, I would say I've been meaning to sit down and watch Citizen Kane since I entered adulthood many years ago, and I just never did it. For me, uh, I'm also a little embarrassed to admit this, but I've been saying for years I'm going to watch Forrest Gump, and I never do. And I've watched a few minutes here and there, and I just can't get into it. Got to watch it. You got to watch it. <laughs> so one me, day, Ed. One day. One day you watch it. For me, I actually have experienced it in the last few months, and it's Groundhog's, Groundhog's Day, because every day is the same thing. I'm hoping to hear from everybody on this one. I'm trying to make sense of like, will it be something that I actually experience in my life or will I watch it? Cause I watch every movie that I want to watch, but like, like some sort of deja vu or this, my life's becoming the movie or album. I'm trying to, I, I'm not quite sure what's going on. I, you know, album wise, like, so I, I'm, I'm still working that out, Marty. <laughs> Come back. To yeah. Me. I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm with you uh, when you said I, well, I see every movie I want to see. There are movies that I think people would say are classic. Um, or at least have its own a great series kicking off here. Um, at least have its own, um, you know, people think everybody should see this film like Harry Potter. I've never read a Harry Potter book and I've never seen a Harry Potter movie. Now the question is, is there a classic movie or album you keep telling yourself that you will eventually experience? I'm not telling myself I will eventually experience that. So I'm with you, Eric, on it. I, I don't yeah, I'm know. Going for it. I'm, I'm kind of going I'm just going to go get it. Yeah. This question kind of came out of the fact that for some reason, after being so into music for so long, uh, I had never listened to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. I had never listened to it straight through. And I eventually got around to it. It was something I did intend to do, but sometimes when I had the time, I just wasn't in a mood to explore that. But finally I sat down and I listened to it and phew, I can get that off my table. Um, but I'm also glad I did. But the Godfather is still out there. But I have less anxiety about that. It's like, I'm not going to be on my deathbed and go, uh, if only I had listened to the Beach Boys pet sounds, my life would be complete. You know, so either it's on the list or it's off the list. If it's on the list, I do it. Yeah, but I'm in an it on the list in terms of, and this is, I'm embarrassed by this because you all know how I feel about like science fiction y kind of stuff by and large. But Star Trek, there, because there's so many cultural references and beyond like beam me up, Scotty, and like multiplying like tribbles, like that's all I've got. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, Ed. But I mean, I'm like totally out of the loop because, and I feel like such a loser. And, you know, when I was in my doc program, I got like sucked into some of the Star Wars stuff. I mean, I liked it okay, but. Can I, can I re, so Jen, explain this to me, not watching Star Trek has you feeling like a loser. I'm confused because my entire high school experience taught me differently. 
right? So I, I, I don't know. It's it, maybe there's a Cliff Notes version somewhere I don't know about. I think it's the company we keep, right? I mean, all y'all on here are always about the science fiction and the fantasy, and you're talking about authors I never heard of and all of this. But like kind of in regular life, I mean, I can remember growing up and people would be making jokes like coming from Star Trek. It's like when I make Seinfeld jokes and my students ask me what Seinfeld is, you know, it's it's that moment, you know, where you're like, oh, I missed something here. You know, and and actually it's, it's uh, what I was thinking about was that uh, I had an experience with everybody loved Frasier for a while. Uh, I tried to watch it and watched an episode or two and didn't understand the joke and asked somebody about it. And they came back with a snide remark about how I wasn't smart enough to get it or something. Um, So I was totally turned off by the series and never watched it. And then for some reason, it it auto-played. I can't remember if it was Netflix or Hulu or something. It ended up coming on and I'm listening to it and I'm laughing in the other room. So now I have it on my list to watch the whole thing. Because you know, over that experience now. So so Fraser, I'm gonna get back to and watch and hopefully understand or Google the jokes I don't. Right. I was afraid to say this because I don't think I'll be invited back after saying it. Um I've never seen Monty Python. Um I I know that's um probably disturbing, but I just I know people it's like a classic. I just have never seen Monty Python. Well, there's a great throw-up scene in one of the Monty Pythons, much like the one I experienced. So, <laughs> you get to watch that. You'll you'll get a sense of what I went through. Yeah, for I sure. Week of vomit. I mean, we had vomit on last week's show too. I mean, yeah. apparently this is a theme. Chantrell in the ch- in the uh, chat room says Abbey Road, um, and uh, she's only seen a couple of uh, Star Trek films. Gavin says, I've never seen The Notebook. I think that's a positive uh, life uh, choice there, Gavin. Um, And then, yeah, Chantrell has never seen uh, a single episode of The Office. Um, That's unacceptable. Um, We need to go ahead and stop now. And Steve, sorry, uh, (laughs) what was that called? The The Office? Yeah. Nope, never seen it. It. Steven, you got to see Citizen Kane. I'll, I'll try, but I took know, I took films dissertation thing I'm doing. Maybe I'll yeah, no, no, no. I took I took films uh, as a minor, and we spent four weeks on Citizen Kane. Uh, great, because the name of the sled was Rosebud. Is that why you spent four weeks? Well, there's a whole mythology about that too. That uh, that uh, it, you should watch Mank which is a uh, series or a show that's uh, talks about Herman Mankiewicz, the person who uh, write, wrote that. And uh, Rosebud means more than just a sled. Let's just put it that way. So follow-up question, is Soylent and Green, was that an actual movie or is it just a line that Soylent and Green is people? Like, I don't remember. Oh, it's a book and a movie. Great yeah, film. A, mm. yeah, good, good I haven't seen it either. If it wasn't apparent. I would see that over Citizen Kane personally, but I sure not <laughs> invite me back either. <laughs> well, the, the Edward G. Robinson death thing, I mean, that that was very good in that. Yeah, it was a good role for him. Um, Cam Williams said he's uh, they've never seen any Rocky movies. Um, Philip Martin hasn't seen Star Wars and don't plan to. 
Um, so yeah, we've got some things going on in the chat room. So that's, I think we're ready to wrap tonight. I think we're ready to wrap. Any final words from folks? I just want to thank you for inviting me to be here tonight. What a wonderful pleasure this has been. It's been really fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank we, it's been fun having, having you folks here and having new perspectives. Thank you for joining us. It really has. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. And we hope that we'll give you more shots to speak. Um, we've noticed that we jump in there quickly, I think, because we know the flow. So hopefully you'll come back and say more next time. Yeah, we appreciate you. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, uh, thanks to the squad, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, Eric, and Elliot. And thanks to our guests, Eric Baltrinick, Michael Jones, Gideon Litherland, uh, Stephen Sanders, and Ed Newkrig for joining us uh, tonight as part of the squad. And of course, all of the folks uh, who joined us in the live stream chat room for their questions. I, you know, I get a little worried at the beginning. We had a, a start that was a little problematic on my end and people came in and then started throwing up some really good, there goes throw up again, um, started throwing up some, some really good questions. So thank you for joining us. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. And you can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menaja Quad Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.